The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. If you could go ahead and find your place in the Old Testament prophet in the book of Jonah, our second week in the book of Jonah. Today we're going to look up the main part of chapter 2 in Jonah. We're going to pick up, though, with the last verse in chapter 1, which is where we left off last week. I want to talk to you first, though, as, as we try to get our perspective right about pride. Pride is a very, very dangerous emotion. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that pride is probably the, the foundation or the root of every other sin there is. A combination maybe of pride and selfishness. If you go back all the way to the beginning, go back to Genesis 3, think about the Garden of Eden, think about Adam and Eve sitting there, and when you look at chapter 3 and you read what Eve was thinking when she took that fruit, she had just listened to some lies from the devil. And she said, she contemplated, the text, Genesis 3 tells us, it says, when she saw that the fruit was good for food, it was desirable to her eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. So, so let me parse that out for you. I like the way that fruit looks. And it's going to taste good. It's going to satisfy my hunger. And according to the... Why you listen to a talking snake in the first place? I don't know. And according to the snake, I'll know everything. I'll be smarter than anybody else. You know, you can almost sense her her nose going up so she can look down her nose at everybody because she knows more than everybody. It's pride. It's feeding the pride and selfishness inside her. And then we get to Jonah, and we understand from last week that when Jonah was first approached, so to speak, by God and given an assignment, he went the other direction, we need to see a little bit into why he went the other direction. He was prideful because, remember, he didn't want to go to the people that God told him to go to because he didn't like them. And he didn't like them because they didn't like him and his people. And so it was a, uh, an, an enemy. So he said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell them about God. They can just go on and be, you know, get the wrath of God and the judgment of God. I don't, I don't you know, God can be merciful and kind and forgiving to me, but not to them basically what was going on in Jonah's heart when he left. When Jonah was turning his back on God, it didn't bother him at all that God was abandoned by him. Suddenly, though, when Jonah was thrown overboard to his death, he found himself in the position of being abandoned by God, and he didn't like that at all. In the water and then inside the great fish, as we will read today, he learned what hell was like. And it was there at the lowest point of this misery that he repented and turned back to God. And that's the story we're going to read here today. So if you would join me 
in verse 17. It's the last verse in chapter 1 of Jonah. And then we'll read through to the end of chapter 2 and hear what's happening in Jonah's heart after he meets this great fish. Here's what the Word of God says. Jonah 1:17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray today that your word will become clear to us. I pray you give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, and I pray you would give us strength to be obedient as we see what you call us to do. Help us today, Lord. Help us hear and understand that we might obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody remember the Encyclopedia Britannica? Anybody under the age of 30 might not. Anybody, you know what an encyclopedia is? Let me, let me start there. It's a, it's a book, it was like the hard copy of the Internet. Let me put it that way. Okay? People used to go door to door and sell these sets of encyclopedias, books that were alphabetically arranged and had an index and all that. And you could, so basically, uh, young people, imagine this. You're given an assignment in school, you've got to write a report. Well, you can't just go sit down at a screen to Google and type in whatever subject you want and have all these resources. You've got to go actually open a book that was doubling as a, a discipline device, you know. It was, it was good for that, too. You could grab it with two hands. And it's about that thick, each volume, about 20-some volumes in the set. And you'd find alphabetically your subject, and you'd open up to your page. And there was, I don't know, a few columns, maybe several paragraphs, giving you a summary of whatever it is subject you wanted to study. It was really amazing. Um, not as easy as the Internet, sure, but here's the thing about when things are printed in a book. When things are printed in a book, there's an expense involved. So there's a lot more effort and energy put toward making the accuracy of that book at a high level. See, on the Internet, you can just go in there, sit in your computer and type and edit. That's why you can't trust Wikipedia because people in there, you know, messing around with the entries, and you have no idea if it's true or not. Abraham Lincoln once said it, you can't believe everything you read on the Internet. It's a verified quote. 
Y'all will get that in a minute. So here's the thing about the, the encyclopedia, though. Did you know that the Encyclopedia Britannica had a subject, had a story about Jonah, the story of Jonah? Because some people want to say, well, it wasn't a true story. It couldn't have been. couldn't have been true. Well, there's a section in the encyclopedia about Jonah, and I found this out. Now, this is interesting to me. If, in your studies, you found your subject in the encyclopedia, but you felt like it was not a, uh, an exhaustive enough treatment of your subject, you needed more information, you know what you could do? I, I, I never knew. If I'd have known this when I was using those things to do my schoolwork, it would have been really helpful. You could write a letter to the Encyclopedia Britannica people and request more information. And you know what they do? They would send you back about a four-page detailed report with more research. I had no idea. I thought all it was just, just what was in the book. It's what I thought. But let me tell you what would happen if you were to inquire and ask the encyclopedia folks to send you more information about Jonah you would receive a four-page report in support of this biblical narrative. Much of the information would come from this article entitled Sign of the Prophet Jonah and its Modern Confirmations. It was published in the Princeton Theological Review in 1927. And in that article, you'll see where there are physiological tests that entirely prove the possibility of something like this happening historical test that shows a similar event actually did happen. Now, a man could survive inside a fish that was that big. Now, it wouldn't be comfortable, but you could survive, and that was really the issue. There would be air to breathe because the air needed to be in there to allow the fish to float. There would be severe heat, about 108 degrees Fahrenheit inside there, and the gastric juices, I know this makes you just so anxious for lunchtime, right? The gastric juices inside the fish's stomach would affect your skin. So it would not be a tea party, but you could survive. In fact, a whaling ship called the Star of the East in February of 1891, one of the sailors disappeared, couldn't be found. Well, they got this whale pulled in, and they opened up his stomach, two days later, and there was the sailor. And he was unconscious, but he was alive. And he made a full recovery and went back to working on the same ship. So it is possible. It is entirely possible. And, of course, it's in the Bible, so I'm going to say it's definitely possible that this story is accurate. It's not just a, an old fish tale, so to speak. So here's what we learn when we get into this section of Scripture. And this part of Jonah's uh, minor prophecy here is different than the rest because the whole thing, once you get to chapter 2 and verse 2, it's a prayer. It's Jonah's prayer. So here's what we get to learn by looking at this passage today. We get to learn firsthand some really, really helpful principles about prayer about how Jonah prayed, how we can learn from his example and how we should pray and things we can 
know when we approach God in prayer, here's some things. I want to give you four principles in this short passage that will help us as we learn from Jonah in his circumstances and how the, he then responded. So first of all, let's look at verse 17 as we get in, almost get into the prayer. Do you see a word in verse 17 of chapter 1 that says, The Lord appointed, or the Lord commanded? See, we saw this last week, and I want us to be real sure we don't miss this point. This is not a coincidence. Rule 39, I told you last week. Does anybody know what Rule 39 is? There's no such thing as coincidence. I won't go into where I got Rule 39, but it's a rule, and it's true. There's no such thing as coincidence. So when it says in the text, the Lord appointed a fish to go get Jonah, it was not an accident. It was not a freak of nature. It was God supernaturally arranging some events, okay? And if you just back up a little bit before that, and remember last week, why was the storm blowing on the, on the seas to begin with? The Lord hurled a great storm on the sea. Why did he do that? Because he had an old boy in there named Jonah who was running from him being disobedient. And he was about to learn a very valuable lesson. So I, I don't want us to miss the fact as we continue on through this prophecy, God has a plan and he's, he's executing the plan, okay, to perfection for his purposes, for his glory, for Jonah's ultimate good, to help him see some things. So don't miss that in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then we get to chapter 2, and we see the prayer. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So four principles of prayer. Number one, honesty honesty see many of our prayers end up being attempts to get God to let us do something he's already forbidden us from doing I, I get questions sometimes I have over the past 17 years sometimes I'll get a question something like this hey preacher is this okay is there anything in the Bible that says I can't do this now, is anything wrong with that question that you see just on the surface? See, here's what that tells me. If somebody's going to come up to me and ask me, is this wrong? Is there anything in the Bible that says I can't do this? You know what that tells me? They already know it's wrong. They're just holding out hope. Well, maybe there's a, uh, maybe, maybe there's a loophole somewhere in the Bible where I can grab hold of it, and make my conscience feel better about doing something I already know I shouldn't do. See, if you have to ask, then you already know. You, you follow me? Honesty. When we come to God in prayer, we have to remember some things about who it is we're praying to. God is a lot of things. He's got a lot of characteristics, right? If you want to try to list and define God's character, what are some words that might come to mind? Holy, gracious, merciful, kind, forgiving, righteous, just, loving. But I will tell you this. He's also infinite which means he knows 
everything. I've said it before. You can fool me. You can fool people in the room. You can fool your family. You can fool your friends. You can fool your teachers, your bosses, your employees, your students. You can fool people. You can't fool God. You've got to know who you're talking to when you come in prayer. Honesty means I have no other option but to be honest before God because He already knows. What, what logical reason could there ever be to try to peddle a, a, a story to God when He... I mean, can you just picture Him up there laughing? Really? Is that the best thing you can make up? You know I already know anyway. God knows everything. He created us. He's a, got a different position. Okay, He's infinite. We're finite. There's nothing we can come up with that will fool Him. So honesty is the right posture through which to come to God in prayer because He already knows. Prayer, by the way, is often misunderstood in this subject of honesty because we sometimes forget the reason for praying to begin with. Now, let me ask some rhetorical questions. Do we pray to God because he, we need to um, let Him know some information that He doesn't know? Well, of course not. Do we pray to God to hand Him a wish list of what we want Him to do for us? Do we or should we? Well, we might, but we shouldn't. Not in that selfish sense. Do we pray to God because we think, this is a tough one, we believe we can change his mind about something? Like maybe he didn't have all the information and if we would just tell him, hey God, but did you consider this? Because if you considered it from this perspective, maybe you'd you know, do things a little differently. Is that why we pray to God? See, one thing that's often missed is the, the reason for prayer, and here it is. You know why God calls us to pray to Him? And, and in like 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, like have a constant attitude of prayer. You know why? It's not because God needs anything from us, but we need everything from God. We pray to build up our relationship with God. We pray more to hear from Him than to talk to Him. But what do we do when we pray? We just talk and talk and talk and talk. How, how many times have we gone into a room alone to pray and opened our Bible and sat quietly before the Lord? Lord, speak to me. Show me something in your word. Give me the wisdom and discernment I need to live this life the way you want me to live it. Help me because I, I'm, I'm weak. I'm in need. I don't know what to do in this situation or this situation. I need a word from you. And by the way, you know what this is? 66 books, guaranteed, word of God. You say you need a word from God? 
This is where it starts, right here. You need to hear from God. You need some wisdom. You need some direction in life right here. Open the Word of God. Read, pray, meditate, listen. We pray because we need God. We need what He has. We need information from Him. We need guidance and direction from Him. We need strength and assistance from Him. We need grace and mercy and forgiveness from Him. You see where this goes? It's all about Him. That's why we pray. So we're not praying to get a wish list. We're not praying to give Him some information that He doesn't have. We're praying because we need Him. And we have to be honest. God is a God of judgment, but His judgment is tempered by the mercy that is so prominent a theme, especially in this prophecy of Jonah. Jonah was very drastically disobedient, going the other direction, and yet God still delivered him. Maybe not in the way he wanted, but he was delivered. Number two, penance or repentance. You have honesty, then repentance, or confession, self-abasement, mortification that shows sorrow for and repentance of your sin. Jonah 2.8 is a good example of this. He gets to the end of his prayer and he says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. So what Jonah is coming to grips with here is that he cherished a worthless idol. He cherished his own ideas, his own agenda, and his own pride as if to say, no God, I'm not going to them to preach. I'm not going to them to tell them the message you have for me because I don't want them to get it. And we're going to see in the next chapter, next week, how that turns out and how Jonah reacts because God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. So he knows the character of God and he, he doesn't want those people to be the beneficiaries of God's goodness because they're enemies. You know, I seem to recall something in the New Testament we'd read from the words of Jesus that says, I tell you, you've heard hate your enemies. I, to, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Right? It, that, that's, that's what the Christian does. We don't, but Jonah is hating on his enemies. He doesn't even, not only does he not want to be around them, he doesn't even want them to meet God. He doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. He hates them that much. So we have honesty or, and then penance or repentance. Number three, thanksgiving. Here's a familiar passage from Lamentations, also in the Old Testament. Lamentations 3, 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. There's a long list of things that we could bring to God and say thank you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just sat down a minute and said, you know what, I'm going to take a piece of paper and a pencil and I'm just going to start writing down some things that God's done for me. I'm going to just start writing down some reasons to thank God. Have you done it? If you haven't, I would suggest you try. It might alter the perspective a little bit because what happens oftentimes is in our lives, 
It's a lot easier to dwell on things we don't have than things we do have. Dwell on problems instead of dwell on good things. To use an analogy from football, you might have a star player and he might be just knocking it out, but every time he makes a mistake, what happens? Boy, every commentator from every place that you can find is going to be so critical of, you know, let's, let's talk about these two terrible plays. Well, what about the other 175 wonderful plays? You heard that before? It's the same thing. It's easy to concentrate on the negative. Well, we should come to God in prayer with thanksgiving. The great miracle in this text about Jonah is not the fish swallowing Jonah and then vomiting him up on the shore. It's when a person comes to acknowledge his sin and confess it before God and when, as a consequence, God restores the broken relationship between himself and his child. You see that in this passage in Jonah 2? What's happening in Jonah's heart and his mind? He had to get thrown into a stormy sea and swallowed up by a big fish for him to finally come to himself, his senses, and go back to God and pray and say, I'm sorry. Because all through chapter 1, when God tells him, get up, go to Nineveh, preach the message I'm giving you. And he gets up, goes the other direction, far as he can go. He gets on the ship, and of course the storm happens, and the sailors, you know, have, a, have an issue with him. They throw him overboard. And God swallows him up in this great fish all for the purpose, not showing off. God's not saying, hey, watch this. <laughs> You've never seen something like this before. That's, that's not the point. The point is the relationship between God and Jonah. Does, does God have to do a lot or a little to get your attention. When you're going the other direction and you're going away from God, when he's told you to do something or led you in a certain direction that you don't want to go, what's he have to do to get your attention? Something major? Like throw you in a stormy sea and swallow you up with a big fish? Or just, you know, all right, so here's a, here's a comparison. This is a, a good comparison. My wife, and, and me. Uh, we're only two years separated in age, so basically the same generation. Um, parents uh, both grew up in, in decent homes. Mine was not nearly as good as hers, in, in my opinion. She, would, she wouldn't make that statement, but I'm just making it. Uh, but discipline. Let's talk about discipline, just for a second. When I was growing up, I needed, how should I say, uh, I need a little bit more encouragement than she did. So if I did something wrong, I get a I get a whipping. If she did something wrong, which was rare, I understand. Her 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 punishment her her mom or, or especially her dad could just look at her with a stern look and she would fall to pieces. So she might get the same result of discipline from something far less, whereas I had to be taken outside and 
introduced to the Board of Education. Okay? But, and, and that's just because that's, that's what I required in order to get the point. She didn't require that. So, so put yourself on that spectrum somewhere. What does God have to do to get your attention? What does God have to do in your life or bring into your life for you to make the connection, understand you need to go back to Him? Jonah was running the other direction, and Jonah required more, so he got more. He tried to run. God intercepted him, put him exactly where he wanted him to be so that Jonah's heart would turn back to God. So that's what happens when we pray. When, you, when you're focused on God and you're in community with Him in prayer and through His Word, then you're, you're drawn closer back to God. That's why we come to God in honesty, in repentance, in thanksgiving. And finally, number four, humility. Humility. See, at the end of the prayer, Jonah's finally, he's finally ready to take his place alongside the ungodly. So he viewed himself as self-righteous. He viewed the people that God told him to go preach to as ungodly. He never saw himself as ungodly. So, see what I'm saying? So here, here's what it is. I can see your sin way better than I can see mine. It's, it's easier. Now, if, if you give me enough time and encouragement, I can see mine but it just doesn't come as naturally as pointing out everybody else's, right? And that's true of all of us. You want to know about somebody else's problems? Let, I can tell you. But you want me to tell you all about mine? It's going to take a little longer because I'm going to have to get to the place in my heart where I'm, where I'm willing to look objectively and honestly and, and be truthful under God and say, no, yeah, I, I struggle with this and I struggle with this and I have a problem with this but we don't like to talk about ourselves in a negative way it's just human nature so humility helps us get to that point Jonah see he finally saw himself as one who was also in need of God's mercy he saw himself not as a Jew who deserved special privilege but a sinful human being who needed God's grace I want to read a quick excerpt before we finish up here from this biography of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson uh, had a radio show called Turning Point on Christian Radio years ago and he, he also he worked uh, in the Nixon administration during Watergate. He went to prison for his role in that and then got saved and this is his biography. I want to just read a couple of words out of here about how this whole process that affected Jonah also affected him. He, he read, as he was talking about his salvation experience, he read a book that was given to him by a friend who was trying to tell him about Jesus, knew he was lost, knew he was all involved in politics with Richard Nixon and was in a bad place. He gave him a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. It's worth its weight in gold. If you haven't ever read it, if you don't own a copy, you should go out tomorrow and buy a copy of it and read it. It is a fantastic, very helpful book. But here's what some of what Chuck Colson says about uh, what C.S. Lewis said to him in this book. 
There's one vice of which no man in the world is free. Everyone in the world loathes this when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians could ever imagine they're guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered or they can't keep their heads straight when they're around women or drinks, but even, even if they're a coward. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this particular vice. There's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. I'm talking about pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, every family since the world began. Other vices might sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunk people or unchaste people. But pride always means conflict not only between man and man but between man and God in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison you don't know God at all as long as you're proud you cannot know God pride is a terrible thing terrible thing. We close with these last words here from, from Chuck Colson. When he's finding out about Jesus and he's read this book, he's talked to many people and people have talked to him, prayed for him, and he's so hung up in his profession and the way he's conducted himself. He says here uh, in his biography, he said, if Christ is real, if that fundamental decision is once made that I'm face to face with the very core of life itself and I can't tinker with that was Christ to change my view of life and my neighbor my enemy my friend my strangers alike was Christ to change my view so drastically my mind was whirling yet deep down I knew forces were at work that were demanding that I rethink every facet of my life folks that's just one man's story and this this prophecy of Jonah is one story in many in this word that points us to the same direction but one thing we have to see when we come before God when we realize we're traveling in a direction that is different or even opposite from what God calls us to go Christ is real. And He is calling us to rethink or re-examine every single facet of our lives. You can't come to Jesus and remain the same. That's not how it works. So when Jonah comes to the end of himself because he's inside the belly of a great fish in high temperatures with gastric juices flowing all around him, barely enough air to breathe, he finds himself praying. And the last words he says in his prayer at the end of verse 9 is this simple short phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord not only from deliverance out of a of bad circumstance, but deliverance from a sinful life. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and He makes it available to all of us. But don't think you can come get a freebie, little handout, and then just go on about your business. Because it means a rethinking of every part of our lives. See, no one has ever truly repented until he has acknowledged that there is nothing in any person that can possibly commend him to God. And no one has ever been saved who has not come to God on the basis of the sacrifice that he alone has provided in Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. Every time, all the time, come to Jesus and be changed. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.